Welcome to Studio of the Future. 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 I went to a liquor store today and I bought my first peach schnapps, which is in a plastic bottle, which I thought was really funny. Would you like a fuzzy name? And if not, that's okay, because you have a water. I, have, I, have, I can put some ice in that glass. And you know, I'm dying water. to like do this. But you have to go to something after this. I'm a hor- you don't have liquor I'm on a, your breath? I'm a horrible driver, Sarah, at the Are best you? of times. Oh, I'm horrible. Uh, I no. could be your driver. That would be so fun to drive you around. And you could call me Little Miss S. Little Miss S, I need you over here right you, now to uh, take me to... Meet got, the president and get him in so gear. So many more important get things him that you're doing, which I what are you talking love about? on many levels. Oh, no. When I researched you, I mean, I knew you were marvelous. But first of all, reading about the history of your life, just your life growing up. I and, wonder where you found all this stuff. Oh, you know, that's my job as Here, a producer. To, there, to, to, to sneak around and find interesting things. And... uh Oh, I should have brought some lip gloss so I could remain. <gasps> Do you need some lip? Uh, deliciously glop. kissable. Eo calls time. it lip glop. When she was a, like two or three, she would go, Mommy, lip glop. <laughs> and she would say, Remember last day, Mommy? Instead of yesterday, last day. Why isn't it called last day? Isn't that amazing? Did your son say? Uh, Gabriel, uh, Gabriel would say, you know, when he'd go to the bathroom, Give me the private seat. So he's. <laughs> To him, that was the private seat. Do you seat. have to pay extra for that? It's like in the bathroom. This is the private seat. We get what's going on here. It's the private seat. Well, welcome today. I'll kind of reveal who you are as we go along. <laughs> or maybe people already know from that. <laughs> that might be a trademark. Of and then I don't they will have about. to decide, is she the killer? <laughs> the clues will, will eke out. Okay, well, I just finished your new book. Hooray. And I have to say, I love to read. My girl. And you're, well, I love your books anyway, but what a fascinating subject. That's what I thought. And your vocabulary in this book, I had to write it down. Bum fuzzled, bugaroo, bum fidgets, I'm blinky. So, I'm so glad you appreciate Is it larouping or larouping? Larouping. Larouping. Ossified. So, you know, these are all beautiful words you use in Daughter of a Daughter of a Queen. So my first question is, will you be on my Scrabble team? Because, <laughs> oh my gosh, these words are fantastic. That's 19th century vocabulary, Sarah. And I did an intense study of it and compiled vast lists, you know, and trying to find Kathy's voice. Mm-hmm. It was this just intensive study of 19... How people talk... Where, where do you go to find this kind of vocabulary? Well, I went to periods, slang dictionaries, and, and read a lot of articles and a lot of books during that time. Mm-hmm. And I sort of go through, and especially I was looking for things that hadn't been used, you know, mm-hmm. not typical, because I just did not want her to sound typical. I didn't yeah. want her to sound like anybody we've ever heard before. And so every time I came across something that was uncommon, new, or delicious, mm-hmm. I put it I put it in my list, mm-hmm. and that's kind of that was the main building block for her voice. Well, let's let's tell listeners what we're talking about. First okay. of all, today's okay. guest is the wonderfully talented, and I'll use your word, delicious Sarah Bird, <laughs> who has written ten novels and has yes. received numerous awards. Which I could I can list them all right here and tell you some of them. Uh, 
You've gotten the Elle Magazine Reader's Prize, the New York Public Library 25 Books to Remember list, People Magazine's Page Turners, which is so accurate for you, Library Journal's Best Novels, the Illumin Award for Excellence in Fiction from the Austin Library Foundation, and a National Magazine Silver Award for your columns in Texas Monthly. And I know that you've also written uh, articles for New York Times, um, Salon, and O Magazine, and you've written screenplays for Paramount, CBS, Warner Brothers, National Geographic, ABC, and TNT. So Sarah Bird, you have accomplished so much uh, and with so and much I'm, and heart. I'm only, and I'm only 34. Oh, I thought you were 37. <laughs> You're much younger than I thought. <laughs> kind of really impressive to think how oh, young. No, God, that's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. And, 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 and you know, and along the way, you've learned other things, which we'll cover in a second. But... Um, I wanted, so I wanted to introduce your new book, which is coming out in September, Great. and it's called The Daughter of a Daughter of a Queen, and your main uh, character is Kathy Williams, mm-hmm. and she has a highly interesting story, a unique story. So could you tell us a little bit about her and also how you discovered her, like what made her yeah. a subject you wanted to cover? Yeah, yeah. Um, very. Kathy and I have been on a very, very long journey, almost 40 years. I first heard the story of Kathy Williams in the late 1980s when mm. I was uh, researching offbeat rodeos. I was, you know, a little snappy photojournalist at the time. So I wanted to take pictures of really interesting things. And I started off with all these offbeat rodeos, you know, kind of the mutant hybrids from, from mainstream rodeo, kids' rodeos, girls' rodeos, chattiadas. The, the ones that I thought were the most fun and exciting and, you know, reflective of their culture were the African-American rodeos. And so at one Juneteenth celebration, and they were really, they had these gigantic jubilant reunion celebrations Mm -hmm. for Juneteenth, and typically there's a rodeo part of it. Uh, I don't exactly remember where I was. It might have been El Campo or Hampstead or Plum or Egypt or... I'm kind of thinking it was the Diamond L Arena outside so, of Houston. Can I ask you? So, are, mm-hmm. are most were most of these rodeos, or are they still in smaller towns? Because all the towns you just listed are pretty small in Texas. They're tiny. They're tiny. Um, uh, they're pretty hard to track down. And you know, after I did that, you know, the photography and whatnot that I did, they were sort of absorbed into what's called the Will Pickett circuit, and they kind of became more mainstream. Mm. So. The answer to your question is, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was at, I believe, this Diamond L uh, rodeo, and I was interviewing two uh, black cowboys who had worked at the Four Sixes Ranch, this legendary ranch. And they were talking, and in the midst of this conversation, they mentioned somebody named Kathy Williams, a woman who disguised herself as a man and served for two years in the Buffalo Soldiers. And I was just, my jaw dropped. I said, is that true? Did that really happen? And they say, well, that's what folks say. That's what folks say. And so, you know, I immediately went back and started, you know, grubbing through the library. This was in the days before internet, of course. Right. So it was all, you know, Dewey Decimal System and stacks. And at that time, I don't think there had been anything published about Kathy Williams. And so I said, well... Story's apocryphal. I love the story, and I so want it to be true, because if it was true, that would make her the first woman to enlist in the peacetime U.S. military, which is huge. 
I cannot emphasize this enough. Uh, But couldn't find anything about her, so I gave up. And so I put it aside until 1988, and I was pregnant. I went to this childbirth education class taught by this wonderful woman named Pam Black. And in addition to being a childbirth educator, she also taught at a predominantly black kindergarten. And so, you know, we were like learning to breathe and all this stuff. And (laughs) second class, she said, you're a novelist, aren't you? And I go, yeah, well, you know, I try. And said, I have a story that you have to write. I have been researching materials for my kids about heroes. They don't have enough stories about heroes who look like them, particularly Mm -hmm. the girls. And I said, oh, well, yeah, sure. She said, "Um, this is a story about a woman named Kathy Williams. And I said, oh gosh, I'm so sorry, Pam. I've heard this story. It's apocryphal, breaks my heart, doesn't really exist. And she said, oh really? (laughs) Did she say it like that? Oh really? In my head. Because the next class she showed up with Kathy Williams, copies of Kathy Williams enlistment papers, her discharge paper, her application for a pension, and just said, yeah, I think she actually exists. I was going, oh, I was electrified. I was so electrified how by this. Was she story. related to Kathy Williams, or how did she have all this important this, That's a kind of a long story. You know, she had started doing research. And uh, by that time, there had been a book public, kind of semi Xerox, mimeograph book book-ish thing published by a woman in New Mexico called Barbara Richardson. Mm -hmm. And she wrote about African-American women of distinction. Included in this book was a brief passage about Kathy Williams. And from that, Pam picked up the phone and called her and then got all this information from Barbara Richardson, which, you know, I lay at the feet of historians because this is a heartbreaking story in the sense that it does not lead anywhere, mm-hmm. except, you know, the initial story, which she, Barbara Richardson, said she got from her uncle, who had lived in Kathy Williams' boarding house. So, you know, she, Pam, then related the story to me as Barbara, you know, the details that are not in any of the official documents or anything about who Kathy Williams was, and you know, just little scraps of doggerel this kind of poetry that her uncle had, you know, written down some of Kathy's story in. So this was this was how I originally got my idea of Kathy Williams before I really started doing the research. Mm-hmm. After this, this idea seized me, I kept pushing it away. I kept mm-hmm. pushing this idea away because I thought, I just questioned whether it was my story to tell or not as a white woman. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very, very sensitive to issues of cultural appropriation. So I kept pushing it away, pushing it away. But it kept coming back to me. It wouldn't leave me alone. But I said, I just don't think I can do it because. Do you think that you think in a way her spirit chose you? I let me just tell you the next part of this story because, you know, I'm among the least woo-woo people. You know, I come out of journalism. You know, I have skepticism just kind of baked into me. But so I am pushing this story away, and meanwhile. You know, I'm just thinking all the time about, oh, Kathy Williams is pissed off that nobody knows her story. You know, that yeah. she's saying, hey, why does everybody know about Annie Oakley and what does she ever do? And I'm going, yeah, what does she ever do? Why don't we, why don't, and I was just waiting for the story, her story to come out. Sometime 
around then, I went out to dinner with a friend of mine who some would say a psychic. Wow. Know? And I had, as I said, been very skeptical about uh -huh. this and had never really seen that side of her and enjoyed her as a very creative, articulate, intelligent person. And so we're talking and her eyes kept fluttering up into her head. And I was going, are you okay? Do you need something? And she said, no, I'm, I'm sorry, but there's been a woman behind you the entire dinner. And I said, okay. And she said, um, tell me, Sarah, had somebody close to you, a woman died? I said, well, yeah, probably like 100% of everybody in the world. And she said, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I meant, no, like, no, it's from a long time ago. And I and she was like, my grandmother, a great grandmother. And I said, um, and I knew who she was talking about. Mm -hmm. I knew, but I kept pushing it away. And, and um, were you pushing it away just to see if she could actually come forward with some kind of sibilance of, um, you know, at that point, there was nothing for me to latch on to except my feelings, mm -hmm. my feelings about this. And then she said, she just shook her head and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I just have to tell you, I see silver doors opening at the top of your head and you letting her pour into yourself. I was going, okay, I surrender. I have to write this. Wow. And this was early 90s, maybe. Um, I had had one pretty unhappy experience with Hollywood. I adapted my second novel and was very unhappy with the way it came out. Had no desire to continue as a screenwriter, but I realized that that would be the perfect venue for Kathy's story. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you see a movie, the person who owns the story are the actors who portray it, and then maybe the director. And the writer is sort of an invisible entity. So I thought, well, I'll write it as a screenplay. And I did. I wrote it as a screenplay and sent it in. And inadvertently, I had done something really cagey in the sense that at that point in the development of TV and movies, they were hungry for strong female characters, particularly television. Television, that was the era of the um, movie of the week, oh, whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And so it was all about strong female characters. And honestly, does it get any stronger than a woman who disguises herself mm -hmm. as a man? Especially in the 1880 <laughs> or 1860s, whenever this... Serves with the Buffalo Soldiers. I can't even imagine. So I, um, I sent this in, and there was a lot of interest and this it kind of became my what's called a calling card script, and like it's what you submit. I wanted I wanted to have the movie made, but everybody who read it, I mean, really liked it, and then they would hire me for other things, but not make that movie. I had several meetings, like with the people who did uh, Roots, oh, and yeah. they told me that they loved the story. Thought it would be a great movie, but they didn't believe that the crossover market, which had existed for Roots, existed any longer. Why? Why would that? Why? Why would they say that? Uh, that they had the data. I I don't know. What year would that have been? Like sometime in the early nineties. I can't exactly remember what mm -hmm. was happening with TV series at that point. But you know, honestly, th there was nothing much after Roots. Mm -mm. 
that told that story yeah. for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then obviously new venues have opened up. Mm -hmm. So I put it aside and felt this, this like obligation I had not fulfilled to Kathy. And I kind of apologized and said, I did what I did, could do, and I, you know, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So then I didn't think anything more about it until 2015. At that point, my sister sent me a link to an article in Variety about Meryl Streep's uh, outrage of the inequity and male female presence, mm -hmm. you know, behind the camera, mm -hmm. particularly. Mm -hmm. And she was starting a screenwriters competition for female screenwriters over forty. <gasps> check, check. <laughs> but wait, you're only thirty-four. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, at that point, I made that deadline by 25 years. So, you know, I mm -hmm. slipped wow. under the wire there. Um, so I submitted and I was chosen and got to go to upstate New York and work with, you know, they, they got together producers and, and directors and various film people. And, and I worked on the story. I revisited the story. And I said, God, I love this story. And P.S., Nobody has done it. Nobody has told this story yet. I have waited and waited. Yeah. But at that point, you know, being much, much closer to the end of my life than you know, <laughs> even the beginning, I said, I cannot go to my grave no. without having, without telling this story. And then I faced essentially my fears of being criticized mm -hmm. for telling uh, an African-American woman's story, you know. I'm a girl. I don't like not to be liked. I don't like not to be approved of. I don't like to be criticized. And I knew that that would happen. And have you had people say things yeah. to you? About, oh, yeah? Yeah. Personally or in the uh, Both. Books? Both. And, you know, frankly, I honor that. That mm -hmm. is super valid concern. Mm -hmm. I'm really, it's, you know, way past time to have that conversation. Yeah. Uh, so... You know, I accepted that mm -hmm. that would be part of the package. When I read the book, I totally fell in love with the courageous marrow just running through her, oh, good. her bones and, yeah, the, me and too. her sweat and tears. And I grew up in a military family, and um, I, I understand this concept of the mission. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I grew up with it, because I, for example, grew up with a father who flew aerial reconnaissance over what we used to call Red China and the Soviet Union, collecting intelligence mm -hmm. for our government to use mm -hmm. as they uh, strategize and go forward and try to keep our country safe. Yeah. Uh, we won't go too deeply into that. But so, you know, that, uh, you know, that's just in my bones. That was bones. internalized in you. About, it's just in yeah, my bones in a way I that I just so understood what drove her. You know, there, there are kind of some um, tent poles, true things that I used. And one of the tent poles was that Kathy was taken off a plantation by Sheridan and cooked for him throughout the oh, Civil War. So this wasn't just a relationship you created. There was actually some sort right. of meeting between the two of them. Exactly. And, and, ah. and uh, there is an article in the Raton paper towards the end of... Uh, Sheridan's life, and he made a trip through and and visited what was called Miss Kate's boarding house. So, so I knew they had a lifelong relationship. 
That is never documented. We have no no other documentation about that. But unbelievable. Uh, it's unbelievable. You know, uh, to me, that decision that she made, and you, know, you have to remember, or you not remember, but understand what it was like at the end of the Civil War for any woman, much less a freed slave woman. Mm-hmm. At the end of the war, you're like, what? What her choices were for you know the South at that point was a smoldering graveyard, and she could have. What was open to it? Be a sharecropper, which we'll is like Canada. like return to servitude, mm-hmm. return to servitude, or uh, prostitute, laundress. These were the great, you know, your descriptions options. of laundresses. Oh my gosh! There's a scene where you're talking about the barrel, and the laundress, and it was so <laughs> horrifying, you know. And it, it's talking about the splinters and the feel of the wood against this woman's skin, and and then she winks at Kathy, you know, yeah. and what that wink meant to Kathy. What that, this is like, I, you've got nowhere else to go except, you know, to right the barrel way, yeah. one way or another. And I just am so inspired to think of this woman who decided, she just said no. Mm-hmm. I, I just love that. I cannot tell you how much <laughs> I love that. She said, no, I don't think so. I'm not, not, not A, B, C, or D, any of those. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, and she got this in her head that she would take a completely different path to, you know, disguising herself as a man. And so I have so many questions about that, as you alluded to, you know, like physically, how did she do it? A woman, because let me emphasize a big point. There were lots of women who disguised themselves as men and served during both the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. But it was an entirely different thing because it was the chaos of war. There were... Uh, drummers, drummer boys, you know, as young as, I believe, God, they had been like hor- eight or something, yeah. horrifying toddlers drumming mm-hmm. out there. So they had uh, girl-esque looking young men. What I'm talking about is the peacetime military. Mm-hmm. Very, very different from war because you're in a barracks. You're next to the same, you're with the same group of men all the time. You're not alone off in a tent with your husband or boyfriend or, Mm. you know, whoever else you had enlisted with. You're alone with these men who are... Are men. Are by and large, (laughs) you know, star for female companionship. And they would take... Beyond. They didn't have... There was no Me Too movement back then. There was very little Me Too hashtagging Mm, going on. No. Computers were really slow back then. They were pretty darn... You know, wood-fired, mostly (laughs) steam-driven. You know, that she made that decision and then carried it off. I just... You know, that those were kind of the questions that just haunted me for 40 years. How did she do it? And why was she the only one that we know of yes, yes. who did it. You know, you kind of like have to walk this this line between research and letting the character come alive in your imagination. And for example, in my imagination, she was always on a horse. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, very dismaying to me to find out she was actually in the infantry. She was a foot soldier. <gasps> and I said, well, maybe, but not in my book. <laughs> wow. I was I was very uh, troubled by that. And then I talked to this friend of mine who's an extremely good historical fiction novelist, John Pipkin. And I said, John, so look, I really want to put my gal on a horse. Mm-hmm. You know, is that allowed? And he said, you know, Sarah, if it is, if it could have happened during that time period, it's allowed. You can't. You can have her on a horse. You can't have her flying an airplane. Yeah. And I said, okay. Mostly, I wanted 
you know, I, I, I stuck to, you know, as many of uh, the real facts as I could. Mm-hmm. But I changed, you know, I put her on a horse. I uh, changed the chronology because in reality, she was pulled off the plantation very early during mm-hmm. the Civil War. And she served with Sheridan throughout the entire Civil War. And I was more interested in the Buffalo Soldier years than I didn't want to write a Civil War novel, which, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. I hope somebody listening decides they do want to write Kathy Williams' The Civil War Years or any other, any, any. That's my hope is that this will inspire others to take her story and make it their own. Was your family humorous or where did this yeah. humor come from? And there was eight of you, is that right? Or six, six children. Six. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. total total mm-hmm. of eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Catholic family, military Catholic family. And so... You know, a lot of repression and sort of, uh, especially the girls, you could not say anything, but if you could get a laugh, you could say anything. <laughs> I mean, you could say nothing, but with the laugh, you could say anything. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, tough crowd. <laughs> but, it, you know, and this is, this is pretty common because we moved around a lot. So we were really tight, mm-hmm. my brothers and sisters and I. And we kind of created this alternate reality, alternate language. We had characters we did. And so it was just just nonstop riff, riff, riff. And, and was this because you were mostly together all the time? I mean, or were you going to schools on the military bases? Oh, yeah, we had to go to school, yeah. but nobody liked school. Nobody liked leaving the house. Mm-hmm. We were all... Happiest together. We were happiest together. I think only one of the six of us had any social skills at all. Mm. We were very awkward and uh, pretty much only comfortable at home. Hmm. And then we'd have tons of fun. And part of this was in Japan. Right. And did you learn Japanese or... You know, it's so odd. Uh, I don't. I didn't formally learn Japanese. So I was there from the ages of five to nine and although I didn't learn Japanese, I had conversations with Japanese playmates and, and the woman who worked for our family. You went and studied tango in New Mexico. Flamenco. Flamenco. Hey, this is Sarah. I have to interrupt the podcast for a second because we're switching subjects here. Now we are talking about Sarah's book, The Flamenco Academy. So just had to let you know so it would make sense. Thanks. Bye. And you, because you were a dancer as a child, and then you saw some flamenco dancers. No, I was never. Yes, I read that you won an award and you went around no, no, with no, the no, comedian. No, 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 no. Let me. I was. I did two weeks as a go-go dancer. You were a go. I was a go-go go-go dancer. Like a go-go dancer. There was no cage. Oh. There was no. It was not sleazy. So I was visiting my parents on Okinawa. Mm-hmm. Um, they were stationed there, and I was going to college and. This was in, let's say, 68, 69. Anyway, I was like a full-blown hippie. You know, they left me as this little perfect Catholic girl in Peter Pan collars Mm -hmm. and Ouijan loafers. And then I showed up with John Lennon Trotskyite glasses and jeans. Uh, So this was kind of the last place on earth that your young hippie and trainee really wanted to be because it was giant military installation. Mm-hmm. Okinawa, mm-hmm. it's um, you know this island at the south end of the Japanese archipelago. Very, very, very strategically vital. It's a terrifying place. Pretty terrifying. Yeah. Pre- 
pretty, pretty terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so I was bored, mm-hmm. incredibly bored, and 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 uh, mooning over my lost boyfriend, whatnot. Um, then they announced on the radio that there was going to be a dance contest, and the winner would win two weeks in Tokyo. I really wanted to go back to Japan, mm-hmm. just because you know I had not been back since I was nine or ten. So I entered this. <laughs> what did what did you That's have to do for the audition? Because I'm really uh, curious to picture you. Okay, and, picture me, if you will. I'm and I uh, along with the listeners, we're all picturing a right psychedelic, now. you know, pink and swirly, uh, like paisley. Goldie Hawn on Laughing kind of a thing. Kind of, you know, could have been that sort of vibe. Uh, romper, and I took my album to dance to Brown Eyed Girl. Oh my gosh! Okay, I'm <laughs> which I then back. put in the book. I tried to get, I tried to use the lyrics to when I wrote about this mm-hmm. and wrote to Van Morrison. I thought he'd be very flattered that I wanted to include him in my book. <laughs> no, you no, couldn't? and hell no, oh. no. So, but it was great because um, I just made up the lyrics in the way that all the albums that we had were these pirated albums. Uh-huh. So they were like you know transparent like charm sucker colors and they and somebody somebody in Taiwan had transcribed the lyrics so they were they were insane Hilarious. they were psychotic yeah. and so I got to just write psychotic <laughs> lyrics to Brown thank you Van didn't need you anyway by virtue of being both over 18 mm-hmm. and Caucasian I won because mm. there weren't many of us it seems to me that you had heartache um, as all of us have but both times you went to dance to kind of alleviate not only when well, that's thin, a good that's a good interpretation that's a good interpretation your- see flamenco no that the real part of that was the heartache part mm-hmm. the uh the novel part was all the flamenco part because mm-hmm. i had never danced flamenco in my life until i started researching you know i took a class in, i cannot dance <laughs> cannot remotely dance flamenco and you took your son with you too right yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he was 13, and I, he took a guitar. flamenco guitar class. Mm-hmm. I just translated this heartbreak, because I started writing this story, I wanted to write the story of my relationship where I fell in love with this guy at first sight, and then there were like followed seven tortured years of my life. And every time I wrote it, I started writing it, because my default setting is kind of humorous, and it, it just sounded like some suburban... <laughs> crisis yeah you know and like I'm I'm mostly waiting around for the phone to ring and you know, exciting things like that but uh, as soon as I transferred that story to the world of flamenco it made sense because mm-hmm. flamenco looked like what I looked like outside what I felt like inside mm-hmm. you know it matched mm-hmm. the way I felt and expressed it you know it's like over the top and gothic and operatic and you know flamenco mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. In, insanely intense and passionate. Mm-hmm. That's the way it feels when your heart's broken. Can we talk about Tori Cates? Oh. <laughs> oh my God. And if not, that's fine. People can go Google it. No, 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 it, no, no, no. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, you know, most writers support themselves as mm-hmm. teachers. Mm-hmm. I had never had any desire or, you know, gifts in the teaching realm. So uh, I wrote. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I wrote was romance novels to mm-hmm. pay the rent. So I wrote, published five romance novels as Atoria Cates. Mm-hmm. And I hesitate to mention that because 
you know, although I like, I also wrote pesticide brochures, you know, to support myself. <laughs> Somehow, if you tell somebody you're a romance writer, you had been a romance writer, it's just like saying, yes, and I was a child pornographer. No. Yes. No, no, no. In really? the sense, in the sense that that is indelible. You never live that down. Well, and then they will go search out the romance in everything you write. And, oh. and I, I kind of hate it because... Well, uh, then we shouldn't be talking about it. Well, I'm sure that your listeners are smart enough to understand yes. the ability to shift gears and like... People have to pass a test before they can listen to my podcast. Good, yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I am very grateful to romance novels. They paid my rent for a long time, but they weren't, they weren't my preferred, as they call it, genre. No, I mean, it's, you know, in our industry, in the music industry, it's the same thing. Sometimes you sing commercials or you... You know, other people sing your songs so you can make a living. I mean, I have I no problem. In the arts, I, have no I don't problem. think people would. I mean, those people, well, maybe they just like romance novels anyway. I, I've just never understood why it's so much seems so much more honorable to teach. You know, you write one thing. You know, I also, I loved writing screenplays, but that also was not my preferred medium. Mm -hmm. Certainly the most lucrative, but. <laughs> <laughs> well. So when this novel comes out, what's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Where do you do you you're going to do a book tour? Or are you in the uh, book tour right now? Not really, not really. I'm going to the first event's going to be at my beloved new downtown library. If you live in Austin or you're coming to Austin, go to the new Austin Library. Oh, it's so, so beautiful. beautiful. It's like a, a cathedral inside. Oh. Very beautiful. And it's got a whimsical, it's not even a clock. It's a giant sculpture of a blackbird. It's pretty cool. But there's also a holographic <laughs> version of Sarah Bird with some interesting <laughs> pants on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who is standing in the entrance of the library and, and she's very formal and she, but her head moves and it's like you're with Sarah Bird. So if you want to hang out with Sarah Bird, you can go to the library. And uh, I, so I, how did that come about? Because the first time I saw it, I was like, there's Sarah. No, that's not, that's what? And, and it's not as tall as you either. Which is uh, no, they had a um, form that they, that, that they, <laughs> you had to fit in their I was form. I was too tall for the form. <laughs> <laughs> they had a female form, and the female form, I think, only went up to 5'8". They could have put wedges on her feet or something. They know? could have, Sarah. It's such say. a good idea. It's just, just this thin <laughs> sheet of plexiglass that then they do a rear projection mm -hmm. fiber optic thing mm -hmm. through, and I'm like, they're going, Bienvenido al Biblioteca Central. <laughs> it's very exciting. You're the only one, too. So you really stand out. Uh -huh. Did you do story time with the children through that vehicle? <laughs> I think that it sort of scares the children. Children, sit down. Children. It's time for stories with Sarah, <laughs> with an H. You're so kind of come on our show. Um, this is honestly, it's a complete thrill for me. It's this, uh, this is my first conversation about this book. I feel like I've been on this 40-year journey, and I've finally reached the oasis. You have a corgi. Do you have two corgis or no. one? I used to have two, but old boy hmm. left us. He was 20 years old. Is that that's a long time for a corgi, right? Yeah, especially when the last three years are immobile and incontinent. Oh no! <laughs> Do you find they bring you any kind of mm, creative relief or creative release? You know, if you're having a, I mean, I don't know if you get 
uh, stymied when you're writing. If there's any oh, process where you're like, what am I doing? Or if you're pretty much always in Oh, yeah. He's my buddy. Yeah. He's totally my buddy. He's my anchor. Mm-hmm. He's there right by my feet every day, you know, looking stuff up in Roger's for me and <laughs> telling me when that's some cliche uh-huh. and going, try harder, Sarah. Yeah. Let's is just this all just mentally, or is he actually? No, he actually speaking? speaks to me. Wow. He does. So is this after midnight? Like, is it a certain time of day when he speaks? Um, any time that he has a thought to share, he'll mm-hmm. just he just lets me know when I'm not quite making the mark. Just to you, or does just your between you and George me, Sarah? Yeah. Up your game a tiny bit. Wow, that's yeah, pretty cool. Corgis are magical. They're magical. Every guest that comes on the show asks a question of someone else they'd like to hear on the show. And it can be anybody you want, and then oh, we gosh. will research and go find that person to come on the show. Oh my gosh, really? Yes. Generally, people go with the first person that comes to their mind. So, well, uh, first person that always comes to my mind is Molly Ivins, and oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry too. I'm sorry. That's going to be a very, no. a very, very hard. Living would be preferable. God, wouldn't you just love to know gosh. what she'd say now? I miss her so. I miss Every, her and Liz Carpenter and and Anne Richards. It's just wrong that they're so not so deeply here. wrong. So deeply. We need deeply. those strong women voices like yours, but they sure were a choir of humor, right? Choir of humor and sanity. Mm. I mean, there is. You know, we're living in the ultimate comedy heyday and humor and whatnot. But there was nobody like Molly, that nobody. level of intelligence and no. and insight and goodness. Did I ever tell you that story about when Molly had cancer and she was in the hospital and Betsy Moon, who was her mm-hmm. beloved assistant and friend, called me and said, can you bring your guitar? And I said, okay. I went over there and the room was just full of women. I mean, all kinds of women just attending to her every need and just being in her presence and Molly was in the bed and head shaved and just drugged out on painkillers. And so I got out my guitar and I sang a couple songs and then I said, let's all, let's all sing together for Molly, you know? So Molly's kind of listening, half listening. And and I told the women what they would sing. And then when they came in to sing, Molly was like, no, no. And I said, everybody stop. This is the worst singing she's ever heard. And then she started laughing. And it was just like one of those things like, I made Molly Ivins laugh to see her in pain and then just give her a little bit of relief. But all the women in the room were, I think, really kind of offended that I asked them to stop. But they were pretty bad. They were pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's such a beautiful story. After our session, I remembered I had recorded an interview with Molly Ivins in 2004. Here's an excerpt from that recording answering Sarah Bird's question that's still relevant today from Molly Ivins. Democracy, in the classic definition, is where all the citizens uh, get to participate in making the decisions. Uh, In other words, they get to govern themselves. And I think it is still such an extraordinary, such a radical idea, the idea that all men and women are created equal that they are endowed by their creators with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, and that governments are instituted among men to secure these rights, and that whenever any government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it. This is still so profoundly revolutionary that people all over the world are willing to die for a chance to live under that system. They died at Tiananmen Square, they died in South Africa, they died a day in Myanmar. 
And in this country, we are in considerable danger of letting the whole dream go down the tubes out of boredom and cynicism and inanition. From people saying, ah, oh, well, there's all, they're all crooks. Well, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, I'm just uninterested in politics. And I really think that in the first place, if you are an American citizen today, you have more political power than 99% of all the people who've ever lived on this earth. Don't throw it away. Don't, don't just say, oh, well, I'm just uninterested in politics. You cannot be interested in politics. It's not a picture on a wall. It's not a television program um, that you can decide whether you like or not. This is the warp and woof of your life. Your life is going to take place in the political reality of this country. Thanks for tuning in to Studio of the Future. I'm your host, Sarah Hickman. Our guest today was Sarah Bird. You can hear and see bonus content at studiofthefuture.org. Thanks to Marty Lester for engineering, mixing, and editing at Everywhere Audio in Austin, Texas. We'd like to thank the Peaceful Pelican of Palacios, Texas, for being a supporter of today's program. This historical three-story waterfront bed and breakfast is right on the bay, including spectacular views, homemade breakfasts, and a comfy place to relax. Mention this ad and you'll receive 20% off your first booking. Visit them at thepeacefulpelican.com. Until next time, keep your mind and your ears open. 